Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. Like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we're thankful to be here as your people gathered together to hear from your word. And Lord, we believe that your word is life-giving. We believe that your word changes us. We believe that your spirit moves in our hearts to cause your word to make us new people. Lord, if we didn't believe that, we wouldn't do this. Lord, even as Paul talks about the foolishness of preaching, that it, it looks foolish. It looks foolish to gather together to hear someone open a book and talk about it. And yet we know, Lord, that you have chosen the preaching of your word to transform souls, to give new life, to give revival to us, to give us hearts that are freed from idols, from fear, from despondency. Lord, you do that. We're not here to hear the words of a man, the thoughts of a man. We're here to hear from you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would cause this preaching of your word to be your very words to us. We pray, Lord, as we open this Psalm 90, this just amazing passage about your everlasting life and our fading lives, Lord, we pray that we would cling completely to you for hope of forgiveness of sin and for the world to come. It's just amazing what you've given us, Lord. Help us to see it. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to be liberated by it. You've been so good to us, Lord. Put your goodness on display. We pray that you would do all this for your glory and for the joy of your people. And all God's people pray. Amen. 
So we looked at Psalm 23 last week. And remember I was saying that Psalm 23 wasn't really about death. It was about life. Well, Psalm 90 really is about death. So it's really about death. It's a, it's a great psalm about how to think about death. But it's also a psalm about living. It's about how to live in the face of knowing that we're mortals, that we will die, and how to face life knowing that Jesus has defeated death. If you look at the little subscript of Psalm 90 here, it says, you know, there's a title, yours might say, from everlasting to everlasting. That's not in the original. But right below that, where it says a prayer of Moses, the man of God, that is in the original. And so we know that this is actually a Psalm of Moses. It's the only one we know of for sure in the book of Psalms that's from Moses. It makes sense. This was a man that was deeply affected by death, as somebody that saw a lot of death. Somebody also, though, that knew God, the everlasting God, so personally, he met with him face to face. And that's where he starts. He starts with it, God is everlasting. Take a look at verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting your God. That's amazing. I mean, we could just spend our whole time on that. The Lord is eternal. He has existed before anything. He has never come into being. He's always been. He has no beginning, no ending. It says here that he existed before the mountains and the earth and the world. See, he's from everlasting to everlasting. Just amazing to think about. We have no conception of anything else that's like God, something that has existed forever. And that's why he can be our dwelling place, because he's always there. This would have meant a lot to Moses as he wandered around in the wilderness, leading people for 40 years that had no fixed home. They didn't have a home, just wandering around the whole time. But the Lord God was their home. He was their dwelling place wherever they were. And because the Lord is everlasting, the Lord is our dwelling place too. The same dwelling place that Moses and the people had, we have. It says, to all generations. Another amazing thing in this text is in verse 4, that the Lord is unaffected by time. Take a look at verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it passes as a watch in the night. The Lord is unaffected by time. We're highly affected by time. We're going to see that later in the psalm. But the Lord is unaffected by time. He doesn't weaken with time, fade with time. He doesn't age. He doesn't become crusty or tired or cynical or impatient with time. Time doesn't have that kind of effect on him. He is the same bright, happy, living, active God he's always been. He's just as fresh. He's just as youthful and exuberant and full of joy. He's unaffected by time. He is our everlasting, unchanging, happy dwelling place. Now, the Lord is everlasting, but we're not. And that's what we see in verse 3. Take a look at verse 3. So he talks about God's eternal. He's everlasting to everlasting. And then it, the mood switches really quick here in verse 3 and says, You return man to dust. And you say, Return, O children of man. Dropping down to verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. We return to dust. Isn't that wild to think about? I mean, unlike the Lord who is eternal and unaffected by time, time gradually dissolves our lives away. We gradually return to dust. We disassemble over time into dust. Moses uses three images here to describe how brief and fragile our lives are. Did you see what the three images are? Take a look at it. 
Do you see them? They're in verses 5 and 6. There's three images there of how our life is so brief and fragile. There's a flood, there's a dream, and there's grass. First, there's the flood. He says in verse 5, he says, you sweep them, speaking of all of humanity, you sweep them away as with a flood. Guys, our lives, which seem so solid and permanent, you know, we've done so many things to try and make sure our lives are solid and permanent and secure. It says here that the Lord just washes it away in a moment. I think one of the best images for this as people in California would be a sandcastle, you know? You spend a lot of time building a really cool sandcastle with all kinds of different things, but you know, you know you're not going to keep it. You know that as soon as the waves come in, it's going to flatten and what it's going to look like, the rest of the beach. It's just gone. And that's our lives. They're swept away like a flood without a trace. Or there's another image of a dream. Look at it. It says, they are like a dream. Our life here is like a dream. Our life passes away like a dream passes away. If you think about it, dreams are really delicate things, right? They're very easily interrupted. They're very easily ended. And, and you wake up and that dream that seems so real, which is crazy because it's like, Crazy thoughts, you know? All these insane things happen in a dream, and you're like, oh yeah, I guess this is happening. You know, like, we totally suspend belief. But this whole time, this whole dream that seems so real, seemed as real as now, it's gone. Vanishes. Without a trace. Maybe you don't even remember it. He uses the image of grass. He says, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes, and it is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Now, we definitely know this one, right? living in this desert place we live in. We get a little rain, we get some greenery, we don't get attached, right? We know it's not staying. We're surprised if it stays for weeks. Because all it needs is a hot sun to come and just wash it away, to just burn it away. So this life, this earthly life we have, is like a sandcastle. It's like a dream. It's like desert grass. It's briefly here and then gone. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. But it deeply bothers me. It deeply bothers me. It's, it seems really wrong to me. I don't know if it seems wrong to you. It seems wrong to me. I mean, human beings are amazing. You just think about, even just physically, human beings are amazing. The capabilities we have, the bodies we have, the life we're given. It's amazing. Life is amazing. Isn't life amazing? You ever just sit back? You ever, you ever just like eat some food and think, man, this is... This is better food than I deserve. Like, this is just a crazy, amazing piece of food here. This is insane. Or you have a time with your family or with your friends, you know, maybe at the beach, maybe at the mountains or the desert or something like that, and you just think, this is incredible. I could do this forever. This feels it's amazing, right? Consciousness is amazing. It's crazy that we see things, right? You guys realize you see things with the back of your brain. You guys realize your eyes, the optic nerve, it crosses at the base of your brain, and you're seeing back here. You're taking light beams that come in, they're transmitted electrical activity, and turned into an image in the back of your head. It's crazy, right? It's insane. Consciousness is insane. It's amazing that we have all these thoughts and, and have all these ideas and dreams and, and things that we have. And for this to all just disappear all of a sudden, it doesn't seem right. It bothers me. And guys, it bothers us because this isn't the way it's supposed to be, right? You're bothered by death because death is a foreign intruder into God's good creation. You know, people talk, well, it's natural. Well, it is now. It wasn't meant to be. 
It's a foreign intruder into God's good creation. Death, guys, is a result of sin. Take a look at verse 7. He talks about it here. He says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sin in the light of your presence. For all our days pass under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? What we can see from this passage is that death is a result of sin, human sin. Not individual people's sin, not like when somebody dies, you go like, I wonder what he did. Right? Jesus cautioned against that. And there were people talking about some people that had died with a tower falling and, you know, different accidents had happened. And, and he said, you know, do you think they were worse sinners than all of you? You know, we don't look at someone's individual death and, and assume that was God's wrath to kill them. We're talking about humanity's sin as a whole. Humanity as a whole is sinned against God, and, and human death is a response to that. And there's a hint of how it happened in verse 3. Did you see it? Verse 3 says, You return man to dust, and you say, Return, O children of man. What's that from? The idea of humans being dust. Where's that come from? Yeah, what, which passage? Yeah, so it's in Genesis, right? Genesis 2 and 3. Take a look at that. Genesis 2. The Lord made the first human being from the dust of the earth. Genesis 2.7 says it this way. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and he put the man whom he had formed there. Look at the creative power of God. So God, your God, the only true God, is the kind of God who can scoop dust up off the ground, form it into a human form, blow his life into it, and it gets up and walks around. That's the power of creative power of God. Isn't that amazing? You know, look at the little dust man that he made. Look at the little dust man. He walks, he talks, he explores, he invents, he writes. The little dust man loves. The little dust man sings poetry to his wife when she's created. He creates families, lots of other little dust people, right? And nations, and all these things come from him. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Amazing. And then it says in Genesis 2.15 that the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "You, You will surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. God gives that dust man, that man made of dust, he gives him one very generous command. He says, look, I made this whole world for you. You didn't have any part in making it. I made it for you. This is my gift to you. Enjoy it all. Just trust me about that one forbidden tree. Just trust me about the one tree. But this whole thing is yours. And I, guys, I want you to see the generosity of God because some of you guys, when you think about God's commands, you don't think his commands are, are generous. He's super generous. He didn't say, you can eat this one tree, all the rest are off limits, right? He said, you can eat of any tree, just not that one. God's commands are like that, by the way. If there's a command that God has, that you've seen in his word recently, that you're feeling like is a real bummer, it's really something that's taking life away from you, just realize that God's commands are generous. Anything he commands for you to stay away from is his grace as well. 
He's looking out for you. He's super generous. He says, eat from any of these trees. Just don't eat from this one. But he, like us, want to be his own God, right? We want to be our own gods. We want to make our own decisions. He ate from the tree. He sinned against God. And then in Genesis 3.17, it says this, The Lord says to Adam, Because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. And so our sin as humanity has, has brought a curse upon the world in which we return to dust, and it turns to thorns. Paul put it this way in Romans 5. He said, Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all have sinned. And what's neat, if you go back to Psalm 90 in verse 3, the Hebrew there, it literally says this, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of Adam. That word there is the Hebrew word Adam. Return, O children of Adam. Guys, this worldview, this biblical worldview, gives the best explanation for two things that we know should not be here. Every single human being instinctively knows that two things don't belong here, both sin and suffering. We recoil at it, which is strange. Because if this is all there is, if the material world is all there is, and if we've just come here through a process of the strong eats the weak, through a process of suffering and death, we shouldn't be so upset about it, right? Suffering and death was our maker in that worldview, right? We should praise our maker. We shouldn't have this sense of like that it's foreign and it doesn't belong here. But the biblical worldview gives us an explanation for why death and suffering are so abhorrent to us. It's because they're intruders in this world, and we know it. Every human being knows that death and suffering are intruders into this world, and it's our sin that let it in. It's our sin that opened the door for these things. Take a look at verse 11. I think verse 11 is actually asking us to meditate for a bit. Listen to what it says. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Isn't that an interesting verse? Think about that for a second. Think about how powerful God's disapproval of sin is. You know, you can do things against a friend or against a spouse or something like that, and you can feel their disapproval, and it's not fun. God's disapproval is 100% lethal to all of humanity. The power of his anger. Isn't that amazing? You know, he says, who considers the power of your anger? Have you considered that before? That his disapproval of sin is so powerful that it's absolutely lethal to all of humanity. Far more lethal than every nuclear weapon ever made. We should tremble at that. We should tremble at that. When we see death in the world, we should think about the power of God's disapproval for sin. Moses saw this, didn't he? Moses saw this firsthand for 40 years in the wilderness. You know, there's, there's an interesting kind of replay of the fall. And so Adam sins against God. He's banished from Eden. He has to go east of Eden, right, to wander. God's people are rescued from Egypt. They're brought up to the promised land. What do they do? They sin against him. They're banished into the wilderness to wander east of the promised land, right? It's a replay of that. 
And so what Moses saw for those 40 years is he saw the playing out of verses 7 through 11. That For those 40 years, why, why were they wandering? They were wandering until that older generation, the adult generation that had sinned against God, all died. Every one of them but two. And Moses presided over this for 40 years. Moses probably Guinness Book of World Records for funerals, right? He would have seen every single person, every friend of his except for two, pass away in that desert. He would have seen the power of God's displeasure of sin in the wilderness. And it's a picture for us, isn't it? It's a warning for us of how sin would exclude us from the true promised land. That sin would exclude us from the world to come. Guys, physical death, as bad as it is, is a visual aid of something far worse. Something the Bible calls the second death. Physical death is a a visual portrayal of something much worse, the second death, which the Bible calls hell. Physical death is a way for the whole world to know that things are not right between humanity and God. It's a merciful thing, right? That he puts out there this huge picture that things are not right between God and man. We have offended him greatly, and it needs to be resolved. And until real recently, every single human culture took the hint, didn't they? They go, things aren't right between us and God. We need to figure out a way to make things right. And so you see different cultures kind of dealing with sin in different ways, animal sacrifices or good deeds or certain religious behaviors. We had a really interesting thing in the medieval church right before the Reformation. It was like, okay, you're a sinner. You lack righteousness. Here's a cool thing. You can buy other people's righteousness. You know, so there was this idea of indulgences. The saints had extra righteousness more than they needed to go to heaven. Isn't that amazing? And they had it in the store of the church. And so you could pay money and actually just buy theirs, which is very capitalistic and wonderful, you know, and so simple, except it's a total fiction, okay? But every culture has in some ways taken this hint and and tried to solve the problem of this obvious problem that we have with God. But one thing they've all had in common is they've all tried to do it by their own good works. You know, I'm going to do enough good works. I know I've done a lot of bad things, but I'm going to do some good works. I'm going to make it up to God, right? You can think of even with the Egyptians, kind of the weighing of the heart on the scales, you know, that was all about, has he done enough good to outweigh his bad? You know, has he balanced the scales? Guys, every man-made religion is really a bottom-up approach. It's a, you know, we've sinned, we need to fix it. It's a, you break it, you buy it type situation. You're the one that sinned, you need to fix it. But guys, that's like the dead trying to bring themselves back to life, right? We're the dead. We can't do that. We've sinned. We have no way of fixing it. The dead can't give themselves life. We don't need a bottom-up approach to this problem. We need a top-down approach. We need the everlasting God of verses 1 to 2 to bring his life down to us. Amen? And that's what we have in the gospel. The gospel stands out in world religions because in the gospel, the solution to our sin and death is not that we somehow work to bring ourselves up to God, but that he has come down to us. The Lord himself has solved the problem of sin and death. And this is totally unique. It's totally unique, this this message that the eternal, everlasting God took on a body that could die. It's kind of amazing that our catechism question fits this perfectly, right? The Lord had to take on, God had to take on a body that was dieable, that could die. A body you could kill. And he needed to do that so that he could solve the problem of death. Hebrews 2 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, the Lord, 
likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Is that you? Has the devil used death to put you in lifelong slavery? You know? It's actually a Christian discipline to think about death regularly. There was a, a really common Christian discipline called memento mori. There's coins for it and things like that. To every day remember you will die. It wasn't meant to be morbid. It was just meant to think about life and what was important. But let me ask you this. Do you fear death? Are you terrified by it? Are you tyrannized by it? This passage in Hebrews says that God has come to be a man to destroy the power of death so that he could destroy the power of the devil who's held it over your life, giving you lifelong slavery. And so Jesus comes into the world. He is God. He remains God. And yet he's fully a man, real human being, guys, real human being. This isn't just God in a man suit, okay? This is a real human being. He has a real human soul. He has a real human mind and emotions. He's, he's got two natures in one person, 100% God, 100% man. It's an amazing miracle, right? So God becomes a man, and he comes to defeat death for you. And this is a very personal mission for Jesus. We can see that in, in passages like John 11 when he comes to the tomb of Lazarus. You know, Jesus had come to save his friends from death. Because like Moses, Jesus confronted the death of the ones he loved. Remember him at the tomb of Lazarus, confronting the death of one he loved? Remember what it said about how he reacted? It said he wept. He felt it deeply. Then a little bit further down, it says another thing that he did. He says, when he saw them weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The Greek there is that he was indignant. He was angry. He was angry at death. He too feels the same thing we do, is that this is not the way it should be. You know, my friend Lazarus should not die. My friend Lazarus, who I've enjoyed all this time, should not suddenly die. He was indignant. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. And in the raising of Lazarus, Jesus was telling us that he has come to free all his friends from death. Every one of you who trusts in him. How did he do it? Well, he does it by dealing with the root cause of death. He does it by dealing with, in Psalm 90, verses 7 through 11. He has come to deal with the root of death by removing God's wrath for our sin. Right? If our death is a result of our sin and God's wrath toward our sin, Jesus has come to deal with the root of it. And that's what he did. On the cross, Jesus endured verses 7 through 11. On the cross, Jesus experienced verse 7, where it says that he was brought to an end by God's anger. On the cross, Jesus Christ, in like verse 8 says, all of our iniquities and secret sins were placed on him before the judgment of God. Jesus did verse 9, where it says that he passed away under God's wrath. Isn't that amazing? He came to undo your death by undoing the root of death, which is our sin. Jesus took the tree of death, the cross, so that we could have the tree of life. Jesus defeated death for us by dealing with the root. God's wrath towards our sin. He took our sin. He took God's wrath on the cross. If you will simply turn to him and trust in him, he has the cure of sin and death for you. You could say, well, I have a lot of other things going on right now. I'm too busy to take the cure of sin and death. Sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? 
Or you could say, there's a lot of things that I want to enjoy in this life that I know he's not for. So I don't really want to take the cure of sin and death. I hope you can feel, at least in this moment, for a second, I hope you can feel the insanity of it. Can you feel it? I hope you can feel it. You feel the insanity of not simply turning and trusting in him, that anything would be worth turning from to trust in him and receive this. Guys, Jesus came to defeat death for all his friends. He took away your sin so he could take away your death. And guys, no other worldview even claims to deal with death. You guys realize that? No other worldview claims to deal with death, to remove death. A lot of religions will, will give you some sort of afterlife that's like hazy and fuzzy and non-physical. Guys, only Christianity gives you the solution to death, a new world, a resurrected body. And Jesus proved it, because you could say, well, he just claimed it. He proved it by being raised from the dead. Jesus is the first of a global resurrection. And as I said on Easter, you're next, right, if you trust in him. He's going to return, and he's going to spread that resurrection power, which he already experienced, over the whole world. He's going to raise us from the dead. He's going to give us new bodies. Did you guys notice when you did the Apostles' Creed, you did not say, I believe in going to heaven when I die? What did you say instead? You said, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen? That's different, right? He's going to resurrect our bodies. He's going to renew this world. He's going to reveal his glory for all of us to enjoy forever. And guys, the life to come is going to be, I hope you see this, much more, it's going to be much more solid and much more real and much better than here. I think sometimes we think of the afterlife, maybe because of like the Simpsons or something, we think of the afterlife as somehow less real, less solid, less vivid, right? More hazy. Do you think that way? More fuzzy, more pale, right? Wispy. But guys, it's going to be more solid. It's going to be more real than here. It's going to be amazing. How many of you guys have read the C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce? So it's a weird book. It's a great book. It's a book about a bus ride up to heaven. So these people kind of come up to heaven, and some want to stay and some don't. And that's the, inter- that's the important thing about the book is their reasons and why they don't want to stay and things like that. But one of the things these people find when they get to heaven is that they are not as solid as the people in the place there. And, and one of the real famous things is when they walk on the grass, the blades of grass won't bend to their feet because they're not solid enough to, to bend them. That's the way the world to come is going to be our resurrection bodies are going to be better. And that world is going to be better and more solid and more real than here. You guys remember the images in verses 5 through 6? You know, this life is like the sandcastle. The life to come is the eternal city. See in Revelation 21. This life is the dream. That life is the waking reality. That's how much more real and more solid and more lasting it is. This life, we are like withered grass. Isaiah says in the life to come, we're going to be like oaks of righteousness, right? Solid, enduring. And I think we can even see that in the resurrection of Jesus. Do you guys remember how Jesus could pass through doors? There's a locked door and he comes in and you think, oh, he's, you know, ghostly. Maybe, maybe the door's ghostly, right? You know, maybe the reason why Jesus could pass through doors is because he was way more solid than it was. He's passing through the door because it's ghostly. He's the solid one. The world to come is more solid than this one. And so will we be. We're going to be everlasting solid people for an everlasting solid world. Jesus said it this way. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says this to all of us. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? How do we live like we believe it? What would it look like to live like we believe it? What would it look like to live like we believe the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting? Well, in the last few minutes I have here, I want to just direct your attention to verses 12 through 17. 12 through 17 are his prayer requests. Actually, this whole psalm is a prayer of Moses. The last five verses are his prayer requests, or six verses are his prayer requests. And this will direct us, guys, in how to live in this time in between, because we live in a time in between the defeat of death, which Jesus has done, and the disappearance of death. You know? Probably like, okay, I know he defeated it, but I still have to face it, which is true. We live in this time in between the defeat of death and the disappearance of death. We live in Jesus' kingdom as an already not yet kingdom. Already death is defeated. Not yet has death disappeared. We live in this time in between. We still have to face death. But we face it, guys, knowing that death is defeated, meaning that our death won't last. It'll be reversed. And it can't take away what we love most. Because that's the sting of death, right? That's the fear of death. Is it somehow going to take away something that we will miss, that we'll never get back again? The good news of the resurrection is we get everything back, right? He's going to raise us make all things new. So how do we live in this time in between the defeat of death and the disappearance of death? Moses has five prayer requests. I'm going to go through them really quick. But they're basically this. Seek wisdom. Seek his return. Seek joy. Seek power. Seek impact. First, seek wisdom. If we believe this, he says in verse 12, he says, he requests from God, he asks God, he says, so teach us to number our days that we may have the heart of wisdom. Because if what I just told you is true, we need to measure our lives accurately, don't we? We should measure them accurately. We should think through how this life is extremely short. Some of you know it more than others. The older you are, the more you know it's short. It's extremely short. And the life to come, the resurrection life, is extremely long. And so it's very important to be wise that we make all of our decisions in light of that, right? I mean, if you're making lots of life decisions and you're not taking that into fact, that's not wisdom. That's foolishness, right? To not take into account that this is extremely short, that's extremely long. Guys, we live in a culture of death denial. That's why a message like this is so weird, Okay? You're like, I don't think I've ever heard a message like this in church. We don't want to deal with it. We live in a culture of death denial. You know, we generally don't have our loved ones die in our house. Like typical church, we don't have a building, but if we did, doesn't have a graveyard in it like they used to. Used to walk to church through the cemetery. It was very helpful in doing verse 12, right? I don't even know if you can point out where a cemetery is. You know, they're not generally right in our space. You know, when Menifee planned, they didn't go like, okay, we'll put the Del Taco there. You know, we'll put the cemetery right next to it. Right? No, we want that far away. We don't think about death. Our culture is a, a world of is death denial, but it's also a culture of resurrection denial. And so we need to teach ourselves wisdom. We need God to teach us wisdom to measure our days. This life is very short. And he says in verse 10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Interesting, same number. Isn't that weird? It was a long time ago. We're right now, life expectancy, 77 years. Some of you beat that number. Good job. 
But 77 years, as I said on Easter, because I'm fun, 4,000 weeks. You have 4,000 weeks. This is one of your 4,000 Sundays. Or less. James said this. It says that we don't know what tomorrow brings. We're a mist. We appear for a little time, and then we vanish. And some of you guys might be like, man, I don't know. That's morbid. But verse 12 says us that's the heart of wisdom. The heart of wisdom, right? And I think it's important, too, guys, that we measure both parts of our life, right? Measure the shortness of our days, but also measure the length of what we have in the resurrection life. And if Jack could come forward, I have an illustration, and it's this. So, this is an illustration of our lives. This is your life, this is my life. Do you see the black part here? You guys even see that? That's my life, right? That's your life. That's a short little piece of life. I don't know. It could be a few decades. It could be 80 years. It could be something like that. So this is, this is your life. This is the life you have now. And then this is the resurrection, and this is the life to come. And I just want Jack to maybe spread my life out a little bit so you can see it. This is your life. Isn't this crazy? So what we have in the resurrection is, in the words of iron and wine, endless numbered days. You have those numbered days, and then you have endless numbered days. This is 6,500 feet of twine, okay? I've done this illustration before years ago, but I still have the box, so waste not, whatnot. But it's something like this, and so this twine, like Jack could keep walking to maybe Elsinore or maybe further, Corona, I don't know, not that far. But this is your life. This is your resurrection life, and I'm going to take my life back. I'm going to try not to saw anyone in half. But guys, this is our life. Wouldn't wisdom be to think about this? Wouldn't wisdom be to number your days? Wouldn't wisdom be to think about this instead of this as much, right? Or to do with this tiny little thing here something that would reverberate into eternity, right? That would be wisdom. So seek wisdom. Seek to number your days. Seek to think about the very brevity of your life now, but the Endless number of days you have. Seek his return. Verse 13. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Knowing what Jesus is bringing for us in the resurrected life, guys, we should long for his return. You know, when John, when he described in Revelation 21 and 22, the glories that are to come, the goodness that we have to come, what do you, how did he end it? He said, come, Lord Jesus. He said, Come. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That's us longing for this. Seek his return. Seek joy in him. Take a look at verse 14. It says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for all the days you have afflicted us and for the many years we have seen evil. Guys, seek the joy that can never be taken away from you. You guys realize our joy is going to be everlasting because we saw in verses 1 and 2, our God is everlasting and he's the source of our joy. Since he's everlasting, we're going to have everlasting joy. And what's great is that like, your joy in God is only on the upswing, right? It's only on the increase because God is infinite in his goodness to experience and we're finite. And so we can't take in all that he is, Right? It's like a little shot glass trying to take in the Pacific Ocean. We can't do it. We're, we're finite. He's infinite. Infinite joy. And so in the world to come, you don't have to worry about, like, are we going to be bored? 
We're going to see the Lord for a while and we're going to go like, what else is there to do around here? There's infinite joy in Him. Infinite things to explore. His glories are bottomless, so our joy is endless. And so guys, we don't need to like desperately grab at every little earthly joy we can here. Right? Especially by sin. You know, that's a lot of times what we're doing. is We're trying to grasp for every little bit of joy. Guys, we don't believe in YOLO. Right? We don't believe you only live once. Right? We live again. And Jesus promises a hundredfold for everything that we lose in this part that we'll have in the age to come. Guys, we, we have this part to look forward to. We don't have to like grab every little joy we can. Seek his power. Look at verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. This kingdom, remember I said it, it's an already not yet kingdom. And so his kingdom will come, death and sin and, and all the, the plagues of this world will be removed. He'll make everything new. But because it's already not yet kingdom, some of that kingdom power and some of that kingdom enjoyment is for us here now. We have some measure of his kingdom power now. His resurrection power is going to break into the world, end all sin and death. But it's also already broken in. It broke in in the resurrection of Jesus, right? That was the first day of the new creation. His kingdom power is broken into our lives when you became born again. You were, if you're a Christian, you were spiritually dead. You were completely dead to God and he made you alive. And so his kingdom power is broken in. His kingdom power is also breaking in through us, through the Holy Spirit. His resurrection power is breaking into this world of death. Hebrews called it the powers of the age to come. We have access to the powers of the age to come. Let's seek that power through prayer. Like we live in a land of death, but guys, he's given us power through prayer. Let us pray for God's power to regenerate the lost. He still does that, by the way. He did it for you. There's a ton of people in your life he could do it for. Let's pray he regenerates the lost. Let's pray he heals the sick. Sometimes he gives us little pictures of the kingdom to come, right? In the healing of the sick. And we've seen a lot of healing, amazing healing. I have a list of it in my little notebook. I keep a list of this because I have to remember it. Let's pray for the restoration of marriages. That's kingdom power breaking into this time. Let's pray for people being freed from bondage to addiction and to sin. Josh and I are going to be up front to pray for any of you that want prayer today. We'll pray for you just like James says, anoint you with oil and pray for that. But guys, look at verse 16. Let your work, God's work, be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Parents, don't you want that for your kids? Don't you want your kids to see answered prayer? Don't you want your kids to see the power of God in this world? Like, let's seek it. And then lastly, seek lasting labors. Take a look at verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands establish the work of our hands. So this is a charge to seek labors that last. If materialism is true, if this is all there is, the physical is all there is, then your labors will not last. Absolutely 100% no. Like you could be the person that discovers, you know, the cure to some sort of cancer. You could be the person that solves, you know, climate change. You could be any of that. You could be, you know, the greatest you know, nicest, most wonderful person, sacrificial person on earth, your labors won't last because humanity won't last. 
and this earth won't last. Nothing lasts, right? But if the resurrection is true, then all the things that we do in Christ last forever. He'll establish the work of our hands. If this is the balance of our lives, you've got this sliver of life here, and you've got this resurrection life to come. Guys, let's give our lives for Christ and his church and his kingdom in ways that are going to reverberate for millions of years to come. Wouldn't that be wisdom? That'd be wisdom, right? Things that won't vanish like a sandcastle, things that won't vanish like a dream, things that won't vanish like grass. Paul put it this way, so we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then listen to this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says all comparison to this, right? This eternal weight of glory. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Guys, seek the eternal weight of glory, right? This life soon will pass. Only things done in Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, in light of death and the way you've defeated it, we pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Make us long more and more for your return and your renewal of all things. We pray, Lord, that you would give us joy that would fuel us in this time, that we would seek you and the pleasures in you that only grow throughout eternity. We pray, Lord, that we'd seek your kingdom power, both for our benefit and for our kids. We pray that you'd make us people of prayer that would pray for your kingdom power to be on display. We pray, Lord, that you would give our lives lasting labors, that we would give ourselves to the eternal weight of glory. Lift our eyes, Lord. Lift our eyes to the life to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.